addressing climate and addressing energy independence as kind of the same thing as a national security question, I think we can uh, make some big headway in, in making progress on both of those questions. So is it a short-term answer? No. Is it a long-term answer? Yes. So is it going to be something that a politician would support who's only worried about the next election? Probably not. Is it something a statesman should support? Yes. And that's why I support it. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Why Millbank Podcast Network from Millbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. Whymillbank.com is the website. If you want to help support this show, we are funded by the value for value model, which states that we put out the content for free to you. You decide if you got value out of it. And if that was enough value that you want to turn into dollars and send back to us so we can continue these conversations, you choose what that is. There's a donate button at whymillbank.com. Everything is helpful and much appreciated. We thank everyone that helps support this show. Hope you enjoy these conversations as we go forward. Today is no exception. Again, we have begun the political campaign season of 2022. Today on the show, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate from South Dakota, Brian Bangs is with us. Brian Bangs is website bangsforsenate.com that's 4 f o r b e n g is bangs b e n g s b e n g s f o r s e n a t e.com bangs for senate if you want to find out more we had a good discussion uh, about who he is and why he thinks that he would be the best to represent South Dakota in the US Senate enjoy the conversation thanks for listening let's get right into it Yeah, as you said, I'm an Air Force retiree. I spent 19 years in the Air Force JAG Corps. Uh, I'm actually uh, originally in the Navy. When I was 17, I enlisted in the Navy uh, during my senior year of high school. And, uh, you know, I was, my family was working class. I grew up in a small town. We've just been talking about small towns. So I grew up in a uh, very small town in uh, north central Iowa, just uh, 20 miles or so south of the Minnesota border. And, uh, uh, I was in the last graduating class from my school before it consolidated. There were 17 of us in that class. What town and, was that uh, again? Uh, Burt, Burt, Iowa. Burt, okay. Burt, yes. Yeah, everybody goes Burt. And then I do generally get an Ernie joke shortly thereafter. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't pull that one out it's quick not, It's not spelled quite the same, but... Uh, Sounds right. Yeah, it's a, it's a memorable town. It was a great, you know, I loved... I'm a small town guy. I loved small town. I love growing up there. So I certainly understand why people wouldn't want to stay in Millbank like you uh, when you had the opportunity to go anywhere else. Um, small towns are incredible. The downside to small towns, of course, is that, you know, you're increasingly not able to find work there. So, so many children grow up and then leave the small town and then realize later what they missed. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent my career, as I said, in the, in the air force for the most part. And, uh, I miss small towns. I tried to avoid the big cities, but jumping back, I'm uh, circularly trying to answer your question here a little bit. Uh, enlisted in the Navy when I was 17 during my senior year of high school, left for basic training um, a week after I graduated from uh, high school after my ceremony and uh, spent two years on active duty. I was part of the uh, special program called the Sea College program at the time, which was a very short uh, program they had where they gave me the GI Bill and a little bit extra beyond that. And in exchange, I got two years of active duty, but I didn't get any training, technical training. So I was a guy in the Navy 
and uh, was assigned to the shipyard, uh, Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, where I was assigned to the USS Kitty Hawk, which was, uh, I analogize it to an aircraft carrier being taken apart, like a frame off restoration of a car, where they they strip everything out, take away the old stuff, and we chip off all the old paint, which I did a fair amount of that. And uh, then they repaint it and put everything back together with new, better stuff. And then, woo, it's a new ship on an old frame. So, so it just looked my good. entire... Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It obviously it was, yeah. you know, sound, but <laughs> a refurb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's but okay. the service life extension program is what it was called, is that uh, they take the old ships that are nearing the end of their life with the stuff that they had and take out the old stuff, put in new stuff to get another, you know, it, it literally just, a, what, two, three months ago was finally sent off to the uh, scrapyard where it's going to be taken apart and become somebody's razors in the future. So at what point uh, after they they crack the bow of a ship, does it go into that refurb position? Is it out there for decades? What, what does that look like? Let's see. Yeah. Well, for the aircraft carriers, you're getting, you're, you're planning on at least a 50 year service life. And the, uh, the Kitty Hawk was, uh, again, it's an aircraft carrier. So, uh, it's keel was laid, I want to say in 53. And so it probably went into service in maybe 55, 56. And so in the late eighties, 88 was when I uh, started. So in 88, it was in the shipyard to get, you know, taken apart mm -hmm. and fixed up again. And then wow. it was in service again until I want to say 2008 or 2009. So it was in an active ship until, uh, you know, 2008, 2009 so, period. Uh, then, how long is that refurb? I'm sorry, this is fascinating. How long is that refurb process? <laughs> I mean, that's not a small machine. That's a small town. No, no. Is what that no, no. Is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little over a thousand, thousand feet long ship. And I think it was 67,000 tons. Uh, and so I was in for two years and it was in that process for two years wow. at least and maybe some change because it had just gotten back in the water it wasn't you know capable of going anywhere but mm -hmm. it was just back in the water floating uh during my last i don't know three four months wow. when i was there that's crazy all right so I keep yeah on that sorry so how'd you go from the navy to the air force well the you know my join the navy and see the world really didn't turn out as i said <laughs> i spent my time as, essentially as a pennsylvania steel worker in the philadelphia shipyard and so that motivated me to go like, well, I don't really like this. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm done with the military because it wasn't, at the time, it wasn't a positive experience. In hindsight, it was, you know, it, it changed my life for the better. And I left unquestionably a better person. I just, just didn't appreciate it at the time. Mm. So I left the Navy and then went to uh, college, went to uh, Iowa State University, where I picked up a bachelor's degree in, in history. And, uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, adrift to a certain extent. And then when I thought, now nah, what do I want to do? I, I don't really know. Um, so I applied to graduate schools and law schools out of there thinking, well, if I get into law school, that's probably a better career move. And I did get into law school. So I went to the University of Iowa immediately afterwards and was thinking not that I wanted to be a lawyer, but that, hey, I want to go into the U.S. Foreign Service. So I will study international law at Iowa and uh, get a background in that. And then I'll you know, apply to be uh, a State Department employee and work in the Foreign Service. And uh, shortly after my first year of law school, I was working with a, uh, I, I worked uh, as a work study program in the office of the state archaeologist for Iowa. So one of the people I was working with there said, hey, you know, my cousin has just spent 20 whatever years in the Foreign Service and he's getting ready to retire. I can put you in touch with him so you can get some insight to what it's like. Uh, and so I, after, this was before really emails came into the boat. Mm -hmm. So sent an actual letter to him and exchanged some letters. And uh, he said, well, you know, 
foreign service is quite different today than it was 20 years ago when I started. So I would actually probably not do it again. And uh, that was kind of a big, hey. What what year was that? This would have been 90, 95, maybe. Hmm. Uh, so that was kind of a big mind change of, well, I'm, I'm into law school already. So right. there's no point in going, well, I guess I'll stop. So finished up there and was looking at county prosecutor positions and, and thinking, okay, you know, I'm a lawyer now, so I'll make a reasonable salary. And the salaries I was looking at for them were not good at all. Uh, <laughs> not very so, reasonable. <laughs> no, well, yeah, that's what, yeah. It's like, well, yeah. that's not the reason. That's, it's a salary, certainly, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, right. it wasn't what I considered reasonable given my student loan debt that I had at the mm-hmm. time. So uh, then I looked back again at the, at the military and, uh, you know, saw the Air Force would give me, because I did, I was in the reserves after I left the Navy. So mm-hmm. I had seven years of of service to on active duty mm-hmm. at the time. And so the Air Force would say, all right, you can, you can come in as an attorney, a JAG, uh, judge advocate, uh, if you if you have passed the bar exam, and I, and I did. And uh, and then you get time for your prior service. So I got a, a pay bump more than just if I just oh, nice. come out yeah. of law school. Yep. So seven years of service was a sizable pay bump. So it was a reasonable salary. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'll go ahead and do four years and you know maybe probably get out uh, and have some experience with the, uh, you know, with military prosecution aspects of things. And then, uh, you know, start my civilian career. And during the four years that I was in, uh, my initial commitment, uh, 9-11 happened. And, you know, suddenly the, the, the whole, well, the whole world basically is different than at that point. Right. And, uh, you know, I like to tell people I was, I was with my people when 9-11 happened uh, because I felt an obligation to do something. And fortunately I was in an organization that was going to do something. And, uh, you know, when things kicked off, the JAG Corps was, uh, was calling out like, Hey, does anybody want to volunteer to help out? Uh, cause they were taking prisoners in uh, Afghanistan and everything. And there's certain rules that you have to treat them with and, and how you handle them. And are they, you know, are they entitled to a trial or are they not? And that sort of thing. Um, so they called out for that and you know, I volunteered and that, whole tribunal process was slow, so slow and getting rolled out that it really didn't matter. I'm sure they had countless volunteers. I was one of them, but it, it was not a factor because that process didn't get kicked into gear for, for years, basically. And, uh, and I never played a role in that, but anyway, yeah. So that led to 19 years. The, I, I still amazed that the air force kept sending me to do things that uh, I never imagined that they, anybody would let me do. And, Oh, really? You let me do that? Oh, and then I can go do that later. <laughs> All right. right. So, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in the Air Force and, mm-hmm. you know, I can't complain. I got to see the world and do some amazing things. And, you know, they paid for some other degrees. And so, you know, it's worked out great. Were you overseas much of that 19 years? Uh, no, the bulk of it was in the U.S., but uh, I did do an assignment at a uh, fighter base in northern Japan where I was my job there was mostly as a fiscal contract attorney. So, you know, I was supervising the, the government spending money and was it legal? Were they following the rules? All that sort of thing. Um, and oh, oh, okay, I'm curious. Did you find <laughs> corruption? Well, it's not. Or, or not is, is that the wrong word? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily corruption. Yeah, so I, I I'd flag things for like people. So, mm-hmm. but every contract the government is spending money on, it has to have a legal review. Okay. Um, is it is it allowed to spend? Because there's this confluence of. Are they following the contract rules? There's a rigid, uh, very, very large number of contract rules of 
how can you spend? What can you do? Did you follow? Have you competed it properly? Does it have, you know, all these sorts of criteria? And then there's fiscal rules that uh, the, the basic rules of federal government spending are time, purpose, or amount. Is the money that you want to spend from an appropriate pot of money in that it's a it's been allocated for that specific purpose, so it's okay to use it? Is it from the time frame that it's allowed to use it? Because if you wanted to spend money from this year, but a prog program would go for you know multiple years, well, you can't spend money from the future, you know, in the past. Right. So there's questions about that. And then is it within the the limits of what you're allowed to spend money? You know, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars was a magic number for, hey, we want to build something, and as long as it's less than seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, yeah, you're probably good doing it. But if you want to spend eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, maybe you're not good. Let's look at through other criteria. So, so three quarter million dollar was like a uh, under that you're good. I mean, pr pretty much no question you're good to go. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm making generalization. Right. No, so I, I understand, but it, it was easier to to you spend that kind of money than if you wanted to go closer to a million. Yeah. Well, there's military construction basically. Mm -hmm. So it it doesn't if it's military construction and you want to spend you know a million dollars there's a lot more stringent requirements because it costs more. But if it's less than, you know, 700, it was yep. 750. I don't okay. know what it is now, but seven, if it's less than 750 and you have a reasonable base of saying, yeah, we want to build this shed or, you know, whatever it is. Yep. Uh, and it's going to be below that amount. Then that's an amount that is more just basically the discretion is lower yep. and it can be used uh, in that regard. So yeah, yeah that's just stuff like that. No, that's intriguing. Uh, how did South Dakota fit into your life? Because you weren't stationed here, or were you stationed in no, South Dakota? No, I, I requested to be stationed in Ellsworth multiple times, and it just never worked out. Uh, so that was unfortunate. But you know, I was stationed in Wyoming. I was stationed in Missouri, um, Nevada, you know, various other places across the country. But um, yeah, South Dakota worked out because when I was retiring out of the Air Force in 2016, I had uh, well, there's kind of a backstory on that, so I'll give you the backstory as well. Uh, the Air Force picked me in 20, what was it, 2006 to go get an uh, advanced degree in international law from George Washington University, followed on by an uh, assignment teaching at the Air Force Academy. So in 2007 to 2010, I was teaching international law and the law of armed conflict at the Air Force Academy. And uh, I love teaching. You know, it, it, I taught before as an adjunct when I had my first base. And, uh, you know, going to the Air Force Academy, I learned how, how horrible I was teaching the first time I did. <laughs> and uh, I learned how I should do it right. Yeah. And, and so uh, when I learned how to do it properly, I just loved doing it. So when I was retiring from the Air Force, I was looking for teaching positions. And South Dakota was a target state because it was uh, right next to Iowa, hmm. close to, to my family. And uh, so I applied for a position at Northern State and, uh, to teach criminal justice and uh, came up to interview and they offered me the job a couple days later. So yeah, we moved here. So that was 2010? No, nah, 2000, I retired in 2016. So oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> Haven't looked back since? So, <laughs> what's that? Haven't looked back since? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I was, uh, I was on the faculty at Northern State from uh, 2016 until 2020 when I resigned to start working on a book project. Uh, that is now on the back burner, but uh, hopefully I will circle back to it at some point. So are you like, do you, are you retired fully now and just like pushing toward yeah. this campaign now? Yeah, that's, that's the perk of uh, a military retirement is that 
I, I don't know that I would be able to do this mm-hmm. if I actually had a day job that required me to do. In fact, I'm going to say confidently that I could not do this or at least not do it well if I had a day job that required me to dedicate, you know, eight hours, nine hours a day mm-hmm. to something else. So I'm spending far more than that per day on on things related to the campaign now. So the military retirement enables me to focus on this as my job at the moment. You are currently running for U.S. Senate, one of the two positions that South Dakota has, which never a state has. Yes. Uh, John Thune is up for re-election. Um, what prompted you to jump into that fray? Well, uh, everybody knows that we've got a problem with the federal government. Uh, now, when you uh, ask people, can, can, on, sorry, can I can I interrupt? Can you expand on that slightly? What do you mean by that? Okay. Yeah, well, I was I was just getting to that. Okay. So it, it depends. You know what the problem is depends on who you ask. Now, from my perspective, as I said, I spent my life in you know the bulk of my life in the military service. Um, democracy, and, and it's no everybody knows that our government has been broken for quite a while, and it's not just like hey, just it broke last year or something like that. Uh, it's been broken for several decades at this point. And, uh, you know, I have my own understanding of why that is. And I think the bulk of the people are inclined to agree with it. But uh, so democracy, basically, I, I think democracy is something that needs to be protected. And uh, the bulk of the Americans, uh, based on the polling that I've seen, agree that democracy is a big factor in terms of um, what what is wrong with our government in that our democracy doesn't work now explain expand on that a little bit Uh, by by democracy are you are you talking about a 51 percent vote a a majority like that is that your thought no well well, the structure of american democracy based upon the constitution the structure of american democracy the idea of democracy you know periodically when i say democracy people say oh we don't live in a democracy yeah, you know, I, I've taught this stuff before, so I'm, I'm familiar with the, yes, we live in a representative democracy based upon the Republican ideal of, you know, we elect people and they do they go do the things. So I'm well aware of that aspect of things. But when I say democracy in the general common mm-hmm. parlance of, uh, of, you know, modern society, I'm saying that people have the ability to vote for what they want and have it be reflected by the actions of the representatives uh, that are acting on their behalf. Now, again, as we all know now at this point, uh, there's accusations that democracy is broken from one side and from the other, but they're based on very different different ideals of what's broken about it. My perspective is uh, is from hopefully from the 30,000 foot range from the overlook of everybody thinks it's broken and it is, but we're fighting about who broke it at this point. And, and that's not the fight we should be having. We should be having the why is it broken and how can we fix it? And it's broken, in my opinion, because of the influence of money uh, that I, I realized before I was a candidate, I realized, yeah, the, the government's broken. Money plays too big a role. Now that I'm a candidate, I can say definitively it is far more broken than I thought it was. And money, money is the game. Money is it. Money is the singular focus of what uh, our politics is built around. And it should not be that way. Why, why you know, if that? George Washington were running today, mm-hmm. if he did not have money, he would not get, he would not be successful. So, w- what does the money get you? In, in I mean, because you're you're now in the in the thick of it. 
What, what yes. like when you say money is the problem, what does that really mean? Does that mean that well, that um, you have more money to buy clout, to buy influence, to buy ads? What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, everything, everything. Well, money is a, is a gate. It performs a lot of functions in our system. Mm-hmm. So it's a gatekeeper, first of all. And I said that I could not do this if I did not have a military retirement that allowed me the freedom to do this. Right. So if you have an idea of a government like, oh, yeah, our, our government should be our representatives should be, you know, random citizens. Anybody could be a representative. In theory, that is true. But if you're worried about paying your bills so your lights stay on and you have a place, a warm place to sleep at night and food on the table, you can't you can't just go, all right, well, I'm going to run for office uh, at, at this level anyway. You know, at, at the school board level, that's fine. But at the statewide level, you can't do that. So it's a gatekeeper right out, right at the start that we're not getting a random uh, a rancher, farmer, you know, shopkeeper able to do this because unless they are independently wealthy, they can't do this. Would term limits help fix that? Well, term limits will help the churn, which I, I support. I've, I've taken a term limits pledge that uh, I would not serve uh, if elected. I would not serve any more than two terms in the United States Senate. But what, what, so if, what if everyone wants you to? You would say, sorry, too bad. I, I'm not I would say it. sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would, you know, it's easy for me to say that now, but I think if we required something like everybody in advance when they're running to say, hey, I here's my uh, here's my position on this. And uh, if I don't follow it, if I try to avoid it, I want you to call me out on it. So I would want everybody to call me out and say, you are you're a liar hmm. uh, if I don't follow that. So I believe, again, this is going back to my military experience where my average time on a station was two years. So I moved every two years with the exception of a couple assignments in the military. And I always thought that was crazy. I'm like, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when I got to a higher level and uh, I could understand the rationale for it and it prevents, um, it prevents, you know, once you're there for a while, you learn the job and you learn the people and you know, everybody and you can work the system. And if I'm there too long, then I'm going to be working the system because everybody else is there too long. But if, uh, if I'm moving all the time, I learn more and the new person coming in isn't going to be prone to the same, hey, I can work the system because they have to learn the system. So the churn of movement through the system makes the system better because it brings in new ideas of, hey, we didn't do it like that over here. I, don't, I think we did it better where I was, you know, one or two places ago. And I think we could fix it here. So the new ideas, we don't get that into the system. Um, because we don't have term limits. So wh- why do you think they're not in the law for, for the U.S. Congress? <laughs> why do you think they're not in the well, law? I, for the I US know Congress? I think. I'm, <laughs> I want to know. And I, I mean, I've asked Senator Rounds uh, about yeah. that. I've asked our Congressman well, then you've got, about it. You know, whenever you hear a politician, by the way, I would prefer not to be called a politician. I do not want to be a politician. Uh, I would rather be a statesman. You know, the difference between a, a statesman and a politician is, uh, a politician will tell you what you want to hear because they're focused on the next election. A statesman will tell you what you need to hear because they're focused on the next generation. So my goal in this is not to become a politician. We don't need more politicians. They are, in fact, the problem. We need more statesmen. The fact that we don't have enough of them is our problem. Now, why we don't have term limits, uh, who would benefit from term limits and who would suffer from them? I think we just saw this. 
you know, who would suffer from them? It's the people in office right now. And the counter argument is that, oh, you know, the people get to decide every time. And we well, have a 90%. You just, you just talked about money as the problem. The, yeah. the, there is no real challenge when you are an incumbent when it comes to exactly. dollars, right? Money flows to power. So money goes to the person in office because they are best able to, you know, there's no quid pro quo, but there's, yeah, there's right. a quid pro quo. <laughs> uh, that's why money flows to power. Everybody knows that. The, the Supreme Court is quite happy to say, well, it's not official. Uh, there's no problem there. Right. We all know the truth. We all know the system is corrupted by money. It's just nobody's fixing it because the people who could fix it are corrupted by money. And I mean, and that must cross the aisle. I mean, that that's the career politician problem, isn't it? Yes, it's exactly. Not, it's not a party problem. It's a system problem. Agreed. Again, from the 20,000 foot level, we can all see the problem, mm -hmm. but we, we, the, we, the people, we, the people have to be the ones pushing the politicians to fix things. And uh, as long as we're not uniform in doing that, because we're too busy fighting about, you know, whatever, then the politicians are able to skate by and, and not fix the problem. So how does a Senator Bangs do that? Fix it in reality? Oh, by myself? I, I'm naive enough to be running, but I'm not naive enough to think that should I be elected, I would be able to do anything by myself. So mm -hmm. basically, I would just be I would be an agitator for the issue to to try to push it, push it, push it all the time and uh, and make sure that we can get more people fired up to start asking these questions and demanding <clears throat> from the candidates that, hey, you should be taking a position on this. So it has to be from the people. And uh, the divisive politics that we have today precludes that from being an answer. It wasn't a problem in the past, you know, because we've had these uh, issues of corruption in the past, and we all agreed that, no, it shouldn't be that way because we were not as polarized as we are today. So we, the people can fix it, but mm -hmm. we're not, we're, we're too busy fighting to actually think, well, there's some commonalities here. Right. We have age limits to, to enter Congress. Yeah. Why can't we have an age limit at the top as well? I, amen. Yeah. Yes. Uh, cause, cause I, I, think you, I mean, I, I'm 43 almost. I have seen the same faces all of my adult life in the Senate with very few exceptions. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Uh, that feels more like a what, monarchy what than anything. <laughs> What's it? Well, yeah, you know, you've got the the whole aristocracy. So once you're in office, if you want to stay in office, it it actually is. Uh, you know, to the extent that you want to call our elected officials leaders, the the military <laughs> style leadership that I was taught in the various uh, schools that I attended was very very different from what passes for leadership as politics, which is more concerned about not. Uh, not being a leader, I guess I would say, in the sense of they're trying to avoid accountability and responsibility uh, strategically. Mm -hmm. They want it on certain things, but they don't want it on everything. Versus the military role is, well, you've got it on these things, so you know, suck it up and deal with it. Now, uh, term limit or age limits, you know, what age that should be? There are people. I was speaking to a 99-year-old woman a few weeks ago who was, was incredibly sharp. She was telling me, she was making book recommendations to me and saying, oh, have you thought about this? Uh, so she would not be, there'd be no reason for her to be subject to a, uh, an age limitation. But at the same time, 
you know, I've spoken to other 90 year old people and they absolutely have no business on uh, doing certain mm-hmm. things. So well, that, it's going to catch are some the good 70 year olds that shouldn't be right. Yeah. So I, I, I get that. So, I mean, there's going to be some outliers on both ends of that clearly. Um, but wouldn't it, I mean, if term limits are taboo, we can't do them because, oh my goodness, the lobbyists don't have term limits. The, uh, you know, the bureaucrats, yeah. the unelected career bureaucrats don't have term limits. So the elected people shouldn't. Um, to me, it's insulting as a as an American citizen that says, I'm the best guy and I now have the war chest. And so, you know, bummer for you. You're not going to hear about anyone else because yeah. I have all the, I buy the airtime. So who's the real beneficiary of all the cash though? Is it is it the news media? Because well, that, that's, that's who gets it in a business. campaign, right? Yeah. It's good for business there, but the reason why, well, why are, why are, why is the money flowing the way it is? You know, it, it could be, you know, the Supreme Court position is that, well, you know, money flows, it's speech. So people just like the ideas espoused by certain politicians and, and they give them money. But we live yeah, in the real what, world. Though? There's got to be a yeah, return exactly. on that investment. We live in the real right? world. Why am I giving somebody money? Uh, because I, I want something. So who the beneficiaries are, I would say probably the biggest beneficiaries are the people or the entities that are giving money. Why are they giving so much money? It must be worth something. So, you know, there's beneficiaries along the way, as you mentioned, the, the media, of course they benefit with the, uh, the massive spending and everything, but uh, is it the regular people that are benefiting? The system, in theory, democracy exists. It is the only tool that regular people have uh, in the history of uh, um, human society to counter the influence of the, the wealthy and the powerful. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be you know, more free as a wealthy, powerful individual to be less restricted, then money helps you. Money helps you if you, if you can influence politicians that way. So from the big standpoint, I, again, we all know how it's broken and why it's broken. It's just the court refuses to recognize that way as, as a reason that should be fixed. And the people that are benefiting from it, the individuals that are spending the money and the individuals who receive the money have no reason to correct it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I listened to an interview on book TV uh, a few years ago with a, I think it was a, a house member from Utah. I can't remember the guy's name. He wrote a book. And in that, he uh, laid out the, the dues that are owed and paid by Congress people for their oh, yeah. committee seats. Yep. Um, that was information I was unaware of. So somebody, they have, he, he claimed in his book that after you're elected, you then have receptions to fundraise to pay for those seats. You're telling me that those people buying, paying for that so you can get your committee seat want nothing out of that? How is that not yeah. out, outrageously corrupt? And I, in my mind, there's no question it's corrupt. So how does someone like you, who I think would agree that that's at least smells of corruption if it isn't blatant. How do you go in to the Senate in November, or I guess January next year, if you win, how do you go in and not just fall right into the rut of this is how we do things? Get over it. You're here. You're the new guy. 
you have no options to say anything else. You have to do this in order to, to even get a voice. How do you not just jump right into the, the machine? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the big trade-off uh, to, I guess, it's kind of a chicken and egg question in the sense of if you want to make changes, you have to be in the machine, but you can't get in the machine if you're pushing for change. So how that's going to work out, um, hopefully, hopefully, if, if it all goes, if I'm actually elected and uh, have the opportunity, I will I can guarantee that I will not be making friends on issues like this. Uh, so appealing again, appealing to the people. If the power resides with the people, as our democratic theory says it does, then you know making enough noise should be able to to make some changes. Again, am I naive enough to think that I will actually be successful? You know, I'm naive enough to hope that I can be successful. To believe that I can be successful, you know, if, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you on that one. Um. <clears throat> A few years ago, when uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got, I think it was 2018, um, someone asked in one interview she was in um, if, well, they asked her, or she was making the claim, I guess, that uh, it's time for the old guard in the Democrat Party to step aside and let, the, let, let some new blood come in. So Nancy Pelosi was asked that question. Is it time to step aside? And her answer just made my... It, it, it burned me as a citizen because it, it to me it showed the level of uh, elitism that, that lives in the ruling class that I think it kind of populates Washington. Her answer was uh, no, because we are run by seniority. And the more seniority you have in Congress, the more say you have. Is that appropriate to hold that well, claim? from this and i understand it because the military is absolutely that same way yeah but the military is not elected though correct exactly exactly uh from my perspective like for you mentioned the the committee assignments and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. from my perspective i think the better system would be random chance where everybody says hey here's the list of my preferred committee assignments and then we start drawing you know numbers or something like that and say all right well number one okay who's that okay his his or her first choice was this committee assignment so you got your first choice congratulations and then keep going down the line that would add some arbitrary uh chance into how our government works in the sense of you know right now we've got equally divided uh, committees. Mm-hmm. You've got X number of Republican seats. You've got X number of Democratic seats. So the system is designed to work for the two-party. Uh, let's organized and run by the two-party system for the two-party system mm-hmm. for their benefit, which adds to the dysfunction right. that uh, this random chance could theoretically start breaking some log jams here and there because you you might end up with you know an all Democrat or an all Republican or super majority one or the other. In fact, you probably would mm-hmm. in most cases. And uh, things that would then be forced to work differently. So uh, the seniority system, again, I, I recognize why term limits would fix it. An age limit would fix it to a certain extent. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy with both of those opportunities. If, if I had the opportunity to support those and advance them, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of you know, age limits. There's some disadvantages, but. Yeah. Speaking of age limits, Chuck Grassley. 
from Iowa, yeah. <laughs> is 88 currently and running for re-election for six more years. He's going to be 94 Yeah. by the time he's done with his next term, assuming, God forbid, that he would die or doesn't die. Um, that feels problematic to me. I mean, I, I value the older generation greatly. They're typically the people I want to hang out with and talk to because I, the stuff they've done is fascinating to me. So I, I tend to prefer that the older generation to converse with personally because um, I just think they're more interesting than young people and people my age. I really do in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think at some point you should have the humility to say, you know what? It's my time to step aside. I've done what I can. You know, how much, 1973 is when he first started in politics. Uh, I mean, President Biden the same way. He's 40 something years in government. One one year kind of in a in a real job environment 100 years ago. Um, that feels problematic to me that we have the the people in charge. And, you know, going back to the seniority question, the people in charge haven't lived like we do. They haven't ever had to wonder if they're going to eat tomorrow. They haven't had the worries, even during the, the last couple of years with the the pandemic response the way it was, where, you know, people were told to stay home and, you know, just fine, we'll take care of you. The people saying that didn't have to worry about feeding their children tomorrow. So I, I, I'm tired of the entrenched politician in there. And party, I, I, I mean, party is less important to me. It's more, let's fix that problem. How do we get, get those people to be humble enough to say it's my time to step aside again it's up to the people the voters to, to make this decision and i i fully agree with you you know the the whole concept of american democracy as written in the constitution is based upon the idea that we'll, we'll not have just a political class that is always from the same group and always going to be in in political positions, but we'll have just regular people mm-hmm. rotating in, coming in for you know a term or two, and then rotating out, and somebody else takes their place. So you get this churn of ideas based upon, as you point out, real life experience of like, hey, that was a that was a crappy deal that we had to experience there, and you know we should probably think about ways to fix that for right. people. Uh, and, and we're not getting that churn because of the, again, I would say the the role of money in our political system. If, if nothing else, then the gatekeeper from who's coming in, if only independently wealthy can run, right. then independently wealthy are in the best position to maintain that position for themselves because they don't actually have to worry about, you know, putting food on the table or, you know, whatever, anything else. Wouldn't it be fascinating if there was a work requirement in order to even run? <laughs> so you had to prove that you yeah. have worked a real job for some period of time. I oh, agree. Yes. Yeah, this was a, uh, to a certain extent, this is a debate that was held uh, about 100 years ago. Roosevelt wanted, at least, when you start talking about the, the upper classes, he wanted the wealthy folks to have to mix with regular people that didn't live their same life. With the low lives. So, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome, yeah. So, and... Uh, That's the, really diversity, whole, isn't it, at some level? It, it is, yeah, it, it is. So the whole idea of like uh, the university system, the public university system anyway, mm-hmm. is that uh, you you have people from that are, that are super wealthy and that are not super wealthy mixing together in classrooms and living together in dorms, and they have to deal with each other. 
Uh, so it's more of an equalization aspect of, yeah, I guess I understand why your position is that way and my position is that way. And, and we can kind of come to some common understanding there. And our system today is kind of drifting, well, not kind of, it is drifting away from that. Uh, because if you're super wealthy, you're probably not going to go to like Northern State University. You're going to go to a private school somewhere and uh, not have to deal with uh, regular folks so much as, uh, you know, other wealthy individuals and people from, you know, higher class backgrounds. Right. Um, should the U.S. government be uh, involved like they are in the Ukraine-Russia situation? <laughs> Okay, well, so you, you, you have on, a unique position just because of your military background. Yeah, yeah, some background on me. Uh, I taught at the NATO school in Germany for three years, so I was teaching operational law there. Uh, as part of that, I, I visited various places in Europe to uh, work with military forces from other countries and, and teach the topics that I was, uh, I was assigned to teach. So I visited Ukraine multiple times and taught at their National Defense University. Um, how NATO does business and how the U.S. does business, that sort of thing. So they'd have some insight into how non-Soviet forces work. So my perspective on Ukraine, and you know, I've done presentations elsewhere on NATO and Western use of force and that sort of thing. Um, should we be involved to the extent that we are? Yes. To the extent that should we be actively involved in fighting? At this point, no, certainly not. Now, that could change in the future, but uh, Russia, the provocations, the, the rationale for Russia invading Ukraine, it is a matter of domestic Russian politics in the sense that uh, Putin thought he needed something to solidify his position with the Russian people. And that's what you get generally with authoritarian regimes is that you need somebody from the outside to fight so you can unite the people at home. And the rationale that uh, we don't want to have NATO on our borders. I, I can understand that to a certain extent. But then when you think about in 2008, Ukraine petitioned NATO for membership in 2008. And France and Germany said, yeah, you know, we don't want to make a Russia angry, so we're not going to support it. You know, maybe in the future, but not right now. And Ukraine went back and, you know, took the, took the re, uh, rebuff. And, and went with a referendum and said, hey, Ukrainian people, what is your position on NATO? Do you want us to try again? And the Ukrainian people said, no, we're good. We'll just, we'll just be non-aligned. We're not going to pursue NATO membership again, but we're not going to you know, cozy up to Russia. We didn't want to. So from 2000, I want to say 2010, roughly, I think, was the referendum, till 2014, they had this kind of neutral position regarding NATO. In 2014, when Russia invaded and seized Crimea, they suddenly changed their position, understandably, and said, hey, we are very pro-NATO now. We would like to get into NATO. And now Russia is invading the rest of the country because they changed their position in response to the 2014 seizure of Crimea. Uh, that's a disingenuous answer for the basis for the uh, aggressive warfare, basically. Is NATO, uh, has, has it outlasted its usefulness? You asked me that 10 years ago, and my answer would have been different. Ooh, Today, what would it have I been 10 say, years ago? 10 years ago, I would say, yeah, it might be. It might be. Uh, it, it would have, it was, if you look, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
it was obviously formed to defend against the the communist threat mm-hmm. as we got involved in you know korea and vietnam you know we, we took a lot of actions against the communist threat not just in europe but across the world uh when the collapse of the soviet union that threat was gone at least in europe so nato was kind of adrift for a bit not really it's a, its core identity was missing so what was its purpose that was a good question today we, you know we have the uh uh, countries of Sweden and uh, Finland petitioning to join NATO. And I certainly understand why. And their decision makes complete sense. Doesn't and that just Ukraine, poke Putin more? Doesn't that poke the bear more? It, Well, yeah, I guess from his standpoint, don't join NATO. And mm-hmm. they haven't. And then all of a sudden, Russia is invading its neighbor. And, uh, and then they want to join NATO? Yes. Is that what he wants? Absolutely not. Is it understandable and is it logical? If I'm Sweden or uh, Finland, absolutely, I'm going to be doing the exact same thing for the same reason. And how Russia responds, it, it's their own problem. They caused this problem, so they deal with the consequences of it, I think. Did the, did the sanctions placed by the Biden administration uh, actually do anything or did it just harm uh, people? Including the U.S. consumers. Okay, so the Russian people or the U.S. That's what was the both. Both. Okay. Obviously, the U.S. is suffering from uh, uh, gasoline prices are the obvious, uh, clear thing here, and we knew that going in that that was going to be a problem. So, is it, are we suffering that way? Yes. Are the Russian people suffering more? Yes. Um, but that, short of armed conflict, this is the traditional method. We've we've sanctioned the Iranian people. We've sanctioned the Iraqi people. We do sanctions when we don't want to have a, an actual violent conflict, so we do the economic warfare. And um, people always suffer. In any conflict, people suffer. So yes, people are suffering. It, it will feels... it have the... No, go ahead. Uh, will it have the, the desired consequences? Well, it is a price, obviously, that's being paid by Russia. Of course, we're paying somewhat of a price as well. It's just a matter of how motivated Putin is to stick by his uh, his decision and suffer all the consequences and that's only a decision he can make. So if the, I mean, thinking about, you know, and I, again, who knows what, how you get in the mind of someone like that. Um, but if, you know, the, the Biden administration position is um, Americans, it's going to hurt, but we're sticking it to Russia. Suck it up. You know, we're, we're, we're just going to have to deal with it because we're, we're getting them. Why doesn't Putin on the other side say, okay, Let's harm the Americans some more. Let's just keep, you know, just slow treading this to just make them implode. Why is that not a possibility? I'm sorry, harm the Americans in what capacity? Well, well the, if, if it's true that the reason our gas is so high and our food is so high is because of what Russia's doing in Ukraine, if, if that's the actual reason, why would he stop that to, to, to help America? Because America is funding the people he's trying to uh, do whatever to. Yeah. So, so w- well, what would incentivize him to to stop if it's all oh, the Americans are hurting? Oh, darn it! I mean, no. <laughs> is he going to think, oh man, I better stop because the Americans are hurting? Well, we're doing the same thing in reverse, in the sense of we're supplying Ukrainians with weapons to kill Russians. So let's let's be clear: we're not we're not supplying like, oh, you know, maybe it'll help deterrence. It is to actively kill Russians. He has no reason to help us. 
nor should he care. We have no reason to help him, nor should we care. Uh, until he comes around to a, hey, you know, live and let live sort of uh, mentality, Ukraine, you have a right to exist, which he's, he's renounced for decades at this point. Uh, they are not, they're not their own people. So he's renounced the existence uh, similar to the way uh, Iran and Hamas have said about Israel. They don't have a right to exist on their own. Um, we cannot expect, we should not rely upon, we should not be in a position where we are forced to rely upon any foreign entity for like gasoline prices. And uh, American energy independence has been, has been a, a mantra that has been repeated since the 1973 OPEC oil embargo when we say energy independence, we should pursue that. Yeah, but shouldn't and we then, then cut really, off Saudi Arabia then if that's the case? To cut off, what do you mean, imports? Well, sure. I mean, if we don't, be re don't want to be reliant on a foreign entity for our energy... I mean, are, aren't well, we pretty reliant at some level on some of that too? We, we, we are, we are very, very reliant on a lot of foreign countries: mm -hmm. Russia, Saudi Arabia. You know, pick wherever the oil-producing region is, and unfortunately, they're generally in unstable areas of the world for the most part. And uh, we are reliant upon them. So, the ability to go forward in the future would not. And this is where I differ with uh, with John Thune. You know, his mantra is always drill more, drill more, drill more, drill more. And oil is a global commodity. John Thune himself voted to make it more of a global commodity in, in 2015 when he said, hey, oil companies, uh, we're going to eliminate the, uh, the ban on export of American crude oil that's been in place since 1977 in the aftermath of the OPEC embargo to try to control prices a little bit more here. And the ability to export oil, it goes wherever it goes to whoever's willing to pay the most for it. So to still play in that same pool and rely upon oil to the great extent that we do invites us to just wait until the next time. And there will be a next time because there is always a next time that we have another gas price shock. Unless we get out of the uh, huge reliance that we have on oil, there's always going to be a next time. How, how do we do that? Get out of the reliance on oil? Well, uh, let's see. Obviously, you know, you're going to hear electric vehicles, and I recognize electric vehicles are not, at this point, practical for a great number of people, to include me. You know, I went down to Sioux Falls the other day. If I had a purely electric vehicle, I would not have been able to come back that same day mm. unless my vehicle had an opportunity to charge for many hours. So, are electric vehicles the future? Yes. I, would, I have a muscle car, a 500-horsepower muscle car. Uh, I love the sound of a burbling V8. That's just, I just love it. But would I welcome a performance electric vehicle? Absolutely. So electric is the future. Electric is also the past. It was the first vehicles uh, that were brought on when internal combustion was starting. It wasn't as reliable. So electric vehicles were uh, prevalent in the cities in the later 19th century. But again, to get back to the oil question, from my perspective, there's a two-for-one return on in our investment here. You know, we, we've talked about climate as being an issue, whether you believe it or you don't believe it. Uh, the derecho the other day suggests that maybe there's some issues that we're going to start seeing repeated in the future. Addressing climate and addressing energy independence as kind of the same thing as a national security question, I think we can uh, make some big headway in, in making progress on both of those questions. So 
Is it a short-term answer? No. Is it a long-term answer? Yes. So is it going to be something that a politician would support who's only worried about the next election? Probably not. Is it something a statesman should support? Yes. And that's why I support it. So, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how, you know, and how much collateral damage is acceptable from huh. the, from the, um, this, the, this, this helping of Ukraine, let's say aid to Ukraine okay. against Russia. How, how much collateral damage to the American public is, is something that we should be okay with, um, accepting. And you know what? I just know $5 gas is where we're at. And it's Putin's, you know, I, I think I heard Nancy Pelosi say it's Putin's uh, tax uh, hike at the pump. Yeah. Uh, I, well, so to, to me, that's Putin's. marketing and propaganda just to say it like that. But if that's true, if they're right, that, that he's the reason, how much of that is acceptable damage to the American public for the, the ruling class in Washington to keep going? You know what? You're fine. Just deal with it. We're going and we're getting Putin. Well, again, I would go back to money and politics. The... At, while, while the gas prices have gone up, and it, is it exclusively Putin's uh, price hike? No. Do we have other factors at play? Yes, we do. And oil companies are making record profits. So American oil companies have decided that now is a good time, because it is, to raise their prices and keep them high and not increase production. So in theory, at, you know, if we're applying a traditional uh, uh, supply-demand matrix to this, whenever there's a higher price, you would increase your production to say, oh, I want to realize that higher price, so I can get more profits that way. Or I can just keep production the same and achieve more profits by having this artificial, um, uh, what I'm thinking of, shortage, this artificial shortage situation and maximize profits. So, would so it there's be, two choices to be made there. So, so would it be more appropriate to say this is uh, the oil company's tax hike at the gas pump? Would that I, be more again, appropriate? I would say, not exclusively, but I would say at least partially. Interesting. If you look at the profits, mm -hmm. you know, follow the money. That's that's always the answer to <laughs> almost any question in politics. Right. Follow the money. Who's who's making it and who's losing it? Yeah. And obviously, the the regular folks like so many of the choices uh, made by uh, government these days. Unfortunately, is the are the ones that are losing it to some extent. Well, somebody else gets more in their pocket. So do you, and I know we're running short on time, so I want to be careful of that. Do you support the whole of the Democratic Party uh, platform? I would say no. Actually. And I would say that just as a matter of um, being a good citizen, anybody who supports anything blindly, you know, you can believe it all. And you, if you've done your research and you've said, yep, this is right on every single thing, mm -hmm. uh, then great. But if you've not done your research, then you should not blindly support anything on any side, Democratic, Republican, whatever, anything. You should do your research and make your own decisions. So the whole basis of critical thinking is, you know, what do I think is the right answer? How do you not become, you know, uh, South Dakota leans red pretty heavily, uh, kind of as, as, from a 30,000 foot view. It's the map is red. Um, <clears throat> it clearly isn't when you get down to the, you know, the granular look, but from, yeah. from, from the sky. Uh, to turn South Dakota purple uh, by having, you know, one of both parties, how do you, you know, how do you not become a rubber stamp to the things in the Democratic Party that you don't stand for? You don't. I'm, I'm not I'm not running to be a, a 
uh, a Democrat rubber stamp, I guess, as you say. I'm running to be a voice of, okay, I agree with the Democratic Party on X, Y, Z, and to the extent I disagree, and there there will be disagreements, um, I, I do my own thing. Again, I'm not running to make friends. I'm not running to spend my life. I'm not running to be Chuck Grassley and, and to die in office. <laughs> Thank uh, you. 12 Thank you. Years, 12 years and out would be my pledge. I've already <clears throat> signed it, and I would want everybody to call me out if I even spoke a word about saying, you know what, a third term would be great. So I would make, I pledge this to every, every South Dakotan that I will make decisions based upon what I believe is correct for the, it will produce the optimal outcome for the majority of not, not rich people, mm -hmm. but regular working class, middle-class South Dakotans who've been getting the shaft for far too long for far, from far too many people. So I, in, in my talks with politicians around the, the country the last few years, uh, I've learned some things, you know, I always ask them what, you know, what, what was the thing that surprised you the most? And one of the things from the Senate is uh, the amount of, of bills that go through under unanimous consent. So no discussion, no vote or no, uh, no anything in the, on the floor. It's, you know what, if you don't have a problem with it, it's, it's law, you're good. Push a button on your email and it's done. Um, yeah. So a lot of that gets done. And, you know, I, I guess there's a lot going on that makes some sense. Um, there's the, all, the other thing is, you get assigned your uh, topics. You get assigned your uh, questions in committee hearings and things. So here you go. This is what you're going to talk about. You don't, you know, some of the people didn't have the option to bring their own homework necessarily. It was, here you go. This is what we're talking about here. And here, here's the question you're going to ask. Uh, how do you just, I mean, obviously you got to play the game at some level. I understand that. But how do you go in there and maybe play the game with one foot, but then you're like, nope, we're going to start changing the game. How do you do that? I mean, that's difficult yeah. in a machine I, that big, isn't it? I, I've got a problem with that in the sense that uh, I've always viewed, you know, in my military career, I've always viewed when some when I was given power or was I was given authority, uh, it wasn't something that I should hold and, and protect. It was something to use. And it was something to use for the benefit of the people that worked for me. So if I, you know, at, at a legal office, we had people coming in and to see the attorneys and if some of them were disruptive or, or abusive, yeah, that wasn't going to stand. So I would take corrective action. And you're, you're talking to a guy who retired from the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel, not a colonel. Uh, I deviated from the traditional path and I knew it was the traditional path and I knew I was deviating from it at great risk to myself um, from the path to promotion. So you can play it safe and get promoted if you follow and it's a little, everybody knows what it is. There's the traditional path and that's how you go. And I, I took a step off it and had the best personally and professionally fulfilling uh, assignment of my career by going to the NATO school and doing what I did. I loved it. Uh, I loved the topics. I loved where I worked. I loved what I did. And I knew that was probably going to kill me for getting Colonel and it did. So Stepping off the path, I, again, I'm not running to be in office. The point is not to be in office, but to do something productive with the authority and the power that you're given or lent, I guess. It's not even given to me. It's yeah. lent it to me by the people of South Dakota. Yeah. So the people of South Dakota have a right to expect certain things from their politicians, and that is to help the people of South Dakota, not to help the people who are giving money to me, but to help the people of South Dakota. And that is what I would want to do. So if I burn bridges, so be it. You know, if I don't win re-election, if I'm elected the first time, so be it. And that's a shorter term limit. Perfect. <laughs> um, 
How can people Great. find uh, where you're going to be, your, more details about you, and uh, uh, just find find you on the interweb? Where should they go? Yeah, the, the website is uh, bangsforsenate.com. And, and as always, when I'm calling people and leaving messages, I always have to spell my name because it's not it's not self-explanatory. <laughs> right. uh, so it is uh, B-E-N-G-S uh, for senate.com. Is that for the word F-O-R? Yeah, okay. F-O-R, yep. Awesome. Uh, I do have to ask before we go, and I, I really appreciate your uh, your time and candor. It's been wonderful. Uh, this is one of the more uh, honest conversations I think I've had with a, a candidate. So thank you very much. It's well, that's wonderful. what I aspire to. Again, um, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not running to be a politician. I'm running to be somebody that actually tries to fix not just uh, a political issue, but the system that is the problem. Mm-hmm. I need to know about this car. <laughs> okay, I actually have two cars. I have a uh, 67 Barracuda convertible. What? Uh, it just has a, it's got a, the base V8 is a 273. So the last year for the 273 before it went up to the 318. And uh, I got that because I fell in love with, uh, well, Plymouth and Barracudas in particular. My first car oh, was a 69 yep. Barracuda Fastback that I had in high school that my brother destroyed. Um, oh, that's involving, terrible. Involving a ditch and jumping over a, a turn in lane and, and so that's a longer story and uh my fun car my super fun car is a a 2010 srt challenger that i've had some extra work done to put out a little over 500 horsepower oh, now and brother how do you not just smoke is, the tires all the time that actually i was just talking about that the other day that it is a bit of a problem but sometimes if you're not careful with the clutch you accidentally you know do a burnout not intentionally it just it just doesn't <laughs> right <laughs> Wow. Do you uh, do any racing at all, drag racing or anything like that? Uh, well, there's. I was hoping there was a place around here, but there's not really. Uh, and street racing, I've found, is frowned upon. So well, You know, unless, until you get caught. It's great until you get yeah. caught. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. Brian Bangs, so, I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Uh, I would love to chat again if later on down the road you're available. Sure. I think this would be a blast. So. We can talk cars again. That would be fun. Do you have I, a fun car? I, I'd be remiss. You have a, certainly no, something fun you drive. Don't no, you? I don't. No? This the right here, though, I this podcast studio in Millbank, uh, we host, or I, I produce a, a drag racing show that is uh, national. There's a, a guy wow. locally here, and then there's a, uh, the other host is in New Jersey. Okay. And so it's the it's the stock and super stock um, world. It's called classracingtoday.com uh, is the podcast. Nice. But so I've, <laughs> I knew nothing of drag racing at all. I mean, I've heard of John Force before. But nothing in the the stock and super stock world. Uh, so that's my uh, toes into racing a little bit. Uh, I used to be a motorcycle safety instructor in Oregon as a job. So okay. motorcycling is something that I'm very passionate about. But uh, cars I, I love. I don't have yeah. a fun car at the moment, but I, I do. <laughs> I envy them. So yeah. that'd be my, fun. My challenger was a, a birthday slash promotion present for me. Uh, I turned 40 that year. And I got promoted to lieutenant colonel that year, so I got a big raise. So, yay, I had some money, awesome. and I had an excuse to buy myself a fun car. That's fantastic. Very cool. Brian, I appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for giving me the time today. Thank you. appreciate it. It was Absolutely. good. Absolutely. Thanks. We'll talk to you at some point in the future. This is the interview. Bangsforsenate.com is the website for Brian. Also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bangsforsenate, B-E-N-G-S. For more information, one of the goals of having these conversations with the political candidates 
around the state and the country is so you can have a little more insight into who they are and maybe help inform your decision on who to vote for. Uh, As we've said in the past, just educate yourself, do your own research, and vote. This is something that we, uh, I hope that this can be part of that research that you do uh, into who these people are and why we may want to have them represent us or not. Kawhimailbank.com is our website. Again, you can help support the show a couple ways. You can decide the value you get out of it. And if that's a dollar value, you decide what that is. Click on the donate button at whymillblink.com. Uh, click on the podcast button. There's a donate option there. You decide what it is. Send it our way so we can continue this. Also, you can help support the show by telling more people about it and sharing it across your social medias for more people to listen and hear them. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time. <laughs>